Putting a stop to hair discrimination, a new bill is heading to the Senate that would ban discrimination based on hairstyles, a problem many black women face. The bill would be similar to what's known as the Crown Act. Crown stands for Create a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. Three Pennsylvania lawmakers are behind the bill, as is a Drexel professor, Wendy Green. Welcome to Buchanan's Dimensions of Diversity, a podcast highlighting diversity in the workplace. I am Lloyd Freeman, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer of Buchanan, Ingersoll and Rooney. Today's episode will examine the law and effects of racial discrimination against African descendants' natural hair in the workplace. Joining me today is Professor Wendy Green of Drexel University in Philadelphia. It's worth noting that Professor Green is the first tenured African-American woman on the faculty of Drexel University's Thomas R. Klein School of Law. Professor Green has devoted her professional life's work to advancing racial, color, and gender equity in workplaces and beyond. Her 2008 article, What's Hair Got to Do With It?, is being adopted in history-making state and federal legislation known as the Crown Acts. These will be the first laws in the nation to expressly recognize race discrimination as inclusive of the discrimination African descendants encounter based upon their natural and protective hairstyles, such as afros, twists, locks, and braids. Professor Green's legal scholarship and public advocacy, which explores how constructions of identity inform and constrain anti-discrimination law, have generated civil rights protections for victims of discrimination throughout the United States. She is one of the world's leading legal experts on this global civil rights issue and founder of the hashtag Free the Hair campaign. She's currently writing her first book, Hashtag Free the Hair, Locking Black Hair to Civil Rights Movements, and that will be published through the University of California, Berkeley Press. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you so much for having me and for spearheading this really courageous conversation, which I know will be quite enriching and fun. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. So b- because you're a lawyer, because you're at the law in the law school setting, we have to start with the law. Some jurisdictions have passed uh, what have become to be known as Crown Acts. Uh, and so you've become the subject matter expert on these Crown Acts and their applicability. Please explain what it is and what it protects against. Sure. So the Crown Acts are also known as the Creating a Respectful and Open World or Open Workplace for Natural Hair Acts. And um, thus far, they have been passed in seven states and, um, you know, um, a number of municipalities throughout the United States. And what it really does at the center of these um, acts is really the experience of African descendants who are systematically uh, discriminated against on the basis of their natural hairstyles, and and it clarifies the definition of race in our anti-discrimination laws or our civil rights laws. Oftentimes, um, in our civil rights laws, we don't have a clear definition, if at all, a definition of what constitutes race and racial discrimination. So what this legislation does, it clarifies that racial discrimination uh, constitutes discrimination on the basis of characteristics that are historically, uh, contemporarily, and commonly associated with race, like one's skin color, like one's um, hair texture, or their hairstyles, or possibly other types of mutable characteristics like our accents and our language, um, our clothing, and so forth. And so it really does provide 
right, you know, or codifies um, that when we think about race, um, it does embody those types of um, characteristics. It's not just simply about skin color and therefore discrimination on the basis of race likewise, you know, embodies uh, discrimination on the basis of natural hairstyles or protective hairstyles like locks, braids, and twists that are associated with African ancestry or indigenous ancestry, for example. and so that's what the Crown Act does. It really provides that kind of um, very clear legal protection against race-based uh, natural hair discrimination, as well as other forms of discrimination based upon uh, changeable or mutable characteristics. So an extension, if you will, of some sort of civil rights or, or human rights legislation that jurisdictions may already have in place. It doesn't add any additional protections per se. Let me say this, because this is where it depends, right? That's the lawyerly answer. Well, it depends. But most, um, you know, most jurisdictions who have that have um, civil rights protections um, against race discrimination don't really um, have a definition of what constitutes race. It's very similar to what we think about in terms of sex discrimination and the battle around whether gender identity and sexual orientation discrimination constitutes unlawful sex discrimination. Well, similarly, in the in the context of race and national origin. Oftentimes, what federal courts were or are doing is saying that discrimination is limited, racial discrimination or national origin discrimination is limited to immutable or unchangeable characteristics, presumably like our skin color. And in some cases, um, you know, courts have thought about it in terms of afros. Afros is something that you were born with or that, you know, something that is a fixed characteristic of, of blackness, for example. But what the Crown Act's really do is clarifies that, you know, when we think about race, um, race is much broader than just our skin color um, because um, there are characteristics that have been racialized, um, that have been associated in this case, like with blackness and and, and oftentimes negatively so, right? right? It has been the subject of, you know, discrimination and subordination um, and exclusion, not only in workplaces and broader society. So what the Crown Act really does, it doesn't necessarily make it does not make, and to be clear, it does not make natural hairstyles or protective hairstyles a protected trait. So it's not, you know, doing something new. What it is doing is recognizing that discrimination on the basis of natural and protective hairstyles that African descendants commonly wear constitutes race discrimination. Okay. So let me put this into a a factual hypothetical for you. Uh, So an employer makes some kind of a subjective determination around what is appropriate hair for the workplace, even in vague terms on, on paper. So in the policy, it says nothing about a person's race, but the employer actually applies that policy to discriminate against uh, people of color or ethnic hairstyles. They can be in violation of this act. Absolutely, uh, because this is what the act really is trying to cure is, you know, the discriminatory enforcement of what we would call race neutral policies, those that may say hairstyles that are extreme or unattractive or unprofessional violate the grooming policy in the workplace. And, and oftentimes, more often than we probably care to admit, is how it's being enforced is that it ends up regulating um, African descendants now natural hairstyles, like locks and braids, twists, afros, right? Because it is being perceived that those hairstyles are extreme, are unprofessional, are unattractive, um, are, you know, 
unruly and distracting, among other types of negative um, types of characterizations, right? So when that does happen, um, then what the Crown Act does, it makes clear that that kind of enforcement against natural hairstyles, um, when a person does bring, say, a racial discrimination claim, that um, that kind of enforcement, discriminatory enforcement against natural hairstyles, um, unequivocally um, is, um, race, is race discrimination, or at least the court needs to treat it as such. Yeah, well, because it seems as if there's some kind of a disparate impact in the application of the policy. So the policy itself seems facially neutral, but then it's only the ethnic hairstyles that are deemed to be unkempt or, you know, inappropriate, et cetera. Right. Yes. And so what the Crown Act does, you know, you're, you're exactly right, that oftentimes what you have is a clear um, incident of disproportionately excluding or impacting individuals on the basis of their race. But I will tell you that even when you have brought disparate impact claims like without the Crown Act or similar types of understandings of race is, of what race is, um, oftentimes, unfortunately, um, federal courts in these Title VII race discrimination cases have still found that those disparate impact claims are not viable because of a very narrow understanding of race as being biological, as being fixed in nature, and therefore racial discrimination only only embodies uh, discrimination on the basis of fixed biological characteristics with which you are born, or uh, and or um, that only, say, Black people possess. And there's no one characteristic that only all only and all black people possess, right? Right, right. So, so that's that's where the Crown Act comes in. It really helps, you know, courts as they are adjudicating or other enforcement bodies, really, um, as they're adjudicating these um, racial discrimination claims, whether it be intentional discrimination or a disparate impact claim, it really helps them to, to really fully appreciate and recognize that um, the kinds of things that you're talking about um, absolutely can, and it does in many instances constitute race discrimination that would violate our civil rights laws. So you hinted on this earlier, and I want to make sure we delve deep into this. Um, you wrote an article titled Splitting Hairs. Love that uh, title, by the way. Um, and in that article, you examined how courts have issued these hair splitting decisions in race-based grooming code discrimination cases. And so I found this so interesting because, as you said earlier, there's been this specific distinction that's made between an afro, which is how hair is naturally growing out of someone's head, uh, because as opposed to twists or, or braids or locks. How do we reconcile this? Are the courts really going through and making determinations about these hairstyles belong in this, in this category and these hairstyles are in that category? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> so this is this is where the intervention comes in, right? Um, because what you're what you're talking about is, you know, for nearly forty years, when we've had African descendant plaintiffs who have challenged natural hair bands or the regulation of natural hairstyles in workplaces as a form of race discrimination, what courts have pretty um, almost uniformly held, federal courts have almost uniformly held, is that. Um, you know, it's race discrimination, unlawful race discrimination when you discriminate on the basis of an Afro, right? But if you lock, braid, or twist that Afro, then magically it's no longer about race. 
And they have described, I know, <laughs> this is where I had to work. <laughs> I had to fix this issue. So it's magically no longer about race and how they've characterized those natural hairstyles that, you know, generally speaking, flow from an Afro hair texture is that, um, 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 and um, is that, that those are mutable cultural characteristics. And mm. because our federal civil rights laws do not prohibit discrimination on the basis of culture, then employers are basically free to regulate, um, you know, natural hairstyles like locks, braids, and twists, except for Afros. So Afros have been considered a, an, an immutable racial characteristic of Blackness based upon this very um, erroneous idea that all Black people are born with Afros and that only African descendants are born with Afros. We know that's not true. Um, <laughs> I think I'm proof of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't going to mention you as an example, but <laughs> not all of us can rock the afro right right and so and so that's not true right and so this is why i call this immutability doctrine and the ways in which it has been um you know really controlling these the scope of civil rights protections against race discrimination a legal fiction it mm -hmm. is based upon this erroneous idea and i and it's not understandable to be clear i'm not saying it's not understandable but this 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 erroneous idea that african descendants only have have darker skin complexion and, and and also all of us are able to rock afros or are born with afros right and so that's how they think of it as like an immutable racial characteristic of blackness and anything that flows from that um, is then considered to be what they call a mutable cultural characteristic and that also to one last point is that it really does help us to think about how we think about race right that race is something that is fixed that you're born with that is unchangeable and that's how they think about race and therefore that's how they think about afros because does that make sense um and that is not true right um, <laughs> right so therefore that's 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 what's happened this hair splitting legal distinction where you have protection if is a discrimination on the basis of afros and if it flows from the Afro, then magically is no longer about race and there is no protection. And that's what um, the Crown Act really um, aims to do is to cure that hair splitting legal distinction and make sure that there is civil rights protection against all of those um, natural and protective hairstyles that have been associated with blackness and that are a critical um, part and fundamental part of our racial and cultural identity as African descendants, not only yes. in this country, but around the world. Identity and expression. Absolutely. Uh, so in the chat, um, I, I'm getting um, questions about one other distinction that I want to layer on to this. What about dyeing your hair? Uh, and so if you do not have your natural hair color, is that still considered to be your natural hair or at that point? So, yeah, so that I've written about this too. Black women can't have blonde hair in the workplace. Um, and so if you guys want to take a look at that, this also talks about hair color um, and the ways in which hair color has been racialized. And in this instance about um, um, uh, blonde hair in particular being racialized is only something, only something that um, say white uh, women can wear. Um, and so what has happened is that employers sometimes will say to black women that they can't have blonde hair 
because um, um, black women aren't supposed to have blonde hair, um, but they don't regulate say white women or other non-black women who are donning blonde hair, right? So basically the, the Crown Act would be able to cover that kind of discrimination uh, where you know, you're having differential treatment on the basis of race due to say um, hair color, um, um, whether it's a humanly natural, especially when it's a humanly natural hair color. Um, additionally, what this does is because in those hair color cases, like I just mm -hmm. mentioned, like in the black women who are donning blonde hair um, types of cases and are discriminated against on those grounds, what has happened is that the courts have applied that immutability doctrine once again, right? And said, because hair color is something that is changeable and they sort of assume that that black woman has dyed her blonde hair, then thus you can change it back um, to whatever is your natural hair color, Right. They have um, they barred, uh, you know, basically civil rights protections, even in those cases, unless you have comparative evidence. And I, and I don't want to get probably too, well, I mean, as lawyers, but I try not to get too deep in the legalese. But unless you have comparators where you have um, evidence that, say, people who are not um, African descendant have been wearing blonde hair or other color hair and they yeah. haven't been discriminated against or regulated. Right. right. But in those, you know, oftentimes in these employment discrimination cases, you may not have that comparative evidence. And, and you know, for sure, like in one case where one black woman, um, she was told during the interview, um, she was qualified for the position, but she was told during the interview that her blonde hair violated their policy against extreme hair colors. And, um, and, and was basically told that she would have to change her hair color as a condition of employment. Well, in her position, more likely than not, there were not going to be any um, white women who held that position. So she didn't have any comparators. And so what the court said was that since your hair color is an is is not an immutable characteristic, this um, discrimination claim has nothing to do with race. Wow. Um, yeah. And so the, the Crown Act really does help to, to, to ensure that even in those instances where you are dealing with, say, racialized assumptions and stereotypes about um, hair color, hair texture, skin color, among other types of characteristics, um, that you do have an, at least an actionable claim of race discrimination um, that is not dismissed just purely based upon this notion or application of this strict notion of immutability as race. So I want to pivot for a bit because I, I want to make sure that we spend a lot of time uh, talking about some of the, you know, perhaps unintended consequences uh, that employers may end up imposing upon uh, folks in the workplace. Because when you Google inappropriate hairstyles for the workplace, you will see images of black and brown women, mostly, with their natural hair, with curls, with locks, afros, twists, et cetera. And that's what's on the internet. But then some workplaces, like you were just talking about with that, that other case there, um, they actually use photos or explicitly say, these are the images that are not going to be accepted you know, in our workplace. This to me is like a modern day version of that um, yeah. Kenneth and Mamie Clark doll test from 70 years ago, you know, and you're, you're showing uh, a little, children of color, you know, a white doll and a black doll, or you're showing them with this hairstyle and that hairstyle. And it's a visual reminder, truly, that society is moving at a glacial pace and recognizing that these ethnic differences or, or hairstyles, that they're a part of one's identity, like you said. So 
then to label them as inappropriate, that does something to people of color. And in your scholarship, I know that you've labeled this uh, psychological trauma as invisible harm. Break down for our listeners what it is that this invisible harm is um, and what it does to people of color. Sure. So even what you're talking about is not only limited to workplaces, unfortunately, Um, you know, there have been plenty of instances in schools where um, children are shown pictures of natural hairstyles, um, natural hairstyles like locks and braids and twists and and sometimes, you know, some little designs in in a faded haircut and and they're being marked, expressly marked as wrong, as distracting, as extreme, as um, violative of the grooming policy that is deserving in their minds of punishment, right? Um, and and it's and discipline. And so it, when you have, you know, these visual uh, representations of, you know, your hair in the ways in which it just grows naturally as being considered distracting or wrong, um, as indicia of criminality, um, as, um, as, um, you know, um, unattractive, as not beautiful, as something that you should suppress, as something that you should even potentially go to great extremes to, to, to extinguish, right? I, that has a very um, deep and long-lasting um, psychological impact. There's this, this psychic harm, right, that is being done when our natural hairstyles are being stigmatized as um, sometimes unnatural and extreme and um, deserving of discipline and regulation, um, and negative regulation, right? Um, so, and this starts very early on uh, for many um, African descendants. And I often say that it starts before we even get out of the womb. Wow. Uh, because, um, you know, if you're kind of familiar with this, maybe Lloyd, um, um, is that even before we're born, people in our family sometimes um, are already speculating around, you know, our hair texture. You know, I hope the baby has, you know, curly hair or good hair, the good hair, hair, bad hair debate. Right. Exactly. I hope the baby has hair like great, great grandma, you know, <laughs> you know, the, the long lost great grandma who is, uh, you know, an indigenous princess. Right. <laughs> you know, so. I, you know, you have these these things already happening, and 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 it's and it's unfortunate because what it is is that you're already um, sort of thinking about um, the ways in which this child is going to be valued in society, how they're going to be received in society, um, and and really hoping that you know if they're born with so-called good hair or straight or loosely curled hair, then therefore they will have greater opportunities. Right. They will be able to access greater levels of um, inclusion and belonging free from the discrimination and stigmatization that is systematically um, uh, systematically African descendants are encountering when they are they don't have that ie when they are having when they do possess maybe a curlier or kinkier hair texture um, and therefore um, also have certain natural hairstyles that flow from that hair texture um, and so I just 
say that that's part of the harm is the emotional and the psychic harm. Those are those invisible harms that people yeah. they just say, oh, just change your hair. Um, it's not that it's, it's just that simple. It's not that simple. Right. Um, and additionally, as it relates to black women and the harms, the invisible harms, in addition to the psychological, emotional harms that, again, are very much oftentimes deeply rooted, even in our childhood and then and then, you know, continue into our adulthood is that for black women and girls, when you tell us that we can't wear our natural hairstyles um, is what you're basically telling us is that we have to conform to what I call a straight hair expectation um, or pressure. Right. And what do we do to straighten our hair? Um, we That's do, a process. It is a process, right? So we are using toxic chemicals um, to, to straighten our hair. We're using extreme heat styling to straighten our hair. You know, 400, 500 degrees Fahrenheit, um, hot combs and um, flat irons, right? To straighten our hair. We are using um, wigs and weaves to, to don straightened hairstyles, right? Um, and so there are real economic costs um, to, to really, um, conforming to these straight hair expectations. They are, there are physical costs because those toxic chemicals, we all, I can tell you, I think every black woman who's ever had a chemical relaxer can tell you about those chemical burns, um, <laughs> on our scalps, um, and also possibly hair loss too, um, whether it be permanent or temporary that goes along with it. Black women at higher rates are, are suffering alopecia, you know, and other forms of permanent and temporary um, scalp, scalp disorders. Um, in addition to that, we have, um, you know, uh, uh, we have research that shows that long-term use of those types of chemical relaxants and other products that we're using to straighten our hair have a potential correlation to uterine fibroids, um, higher rates of uterine fibroids, uterine cancer, breast cancer, more aggressive forms of breast cancer, also um, hormone hormonal infertility amongst black women, higher rates of hormonal infertility, and among black girls, higher rates of uh, hormonal, um, um, just hormonal activity, right? So um, if we're starting to use those chemical relaxants or, you know, which we do at very early ages, sometimes as early as like three years old, to be able to conform to what society tells us is beautiful and attractive and therefore, um, you know, a pathway to, to, to inclusion um, and belonging, um, then we are doing some real, oftentimes we're doing some real serious harm that it is invisibilized, that people are not even aware of because that's not your experience. You don't have to maybe do that in order to straighten your hair. You grow, if you wake up and your hair is straight, then you don't have to be concerned about that, right? But this is something that, especially for Black women and girls, we are concerned about at very early ages um, because of these societal pressures and then later into adulthood because of those professional and educational pressures. Um, so those are the kinds of invisible harms that the work um, really speaks to, um, to make clear that it's not um, harmless, these grooming regulations that um, bar natural hairstyles. It's not as simple as just, oh, just change your hair as um, in order to get a job for which you are qualified. Um, it is much bigger than that. There's economic, psychological, physical harms um, um, that we really need to be um, aware of. And so when I talk about this issue, I say this all the time, uh, is that if you care about Black women's health, then you have to care about our hair. You know, I, I read one of your pieces and uh, talking about those, those health 
um, uh, risks and consequences associated with this, uh, talking about the lack of exercise. And so, you know, when you mentioned before, you know, whether you're a person of African descent and you get, um, uh, well, you're wearing a, a weave or you are trying to straighten your hair, then you will decide not to perhaps work out, exercise, um, because you don't want to risk, you know, uh, wasting your money or, or the time that you've put into trying to get this appropriate hairstyle for the workplace. So a ton of other health consequences that could come along with that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because if we're not exercising or engaging in physical activity, then you know it leads to other types of medical conditions and they can be chronic and sometimes fatal, right? Um, and so, and that is something that we're doing, again, starting from very early age, Ages. I can tell you my own personal stories with respect to that. Um, when I would get my hair straightened, you know, for maybe a special event, um, you know, I couldn't go outside and play. <laughs> you had to sit still. <laughs> you had to sit still. And I will tell you one of the worst forms of discipline I ever got. My mother's probably going to be so mad at me about sharing this story. But one of the worst forms of discipline I ever got was because I, 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 I went, I, I just destroyed the whole the whole straight hair, uh, the whole like five, six hours at the salon on a Saturday morning, um, just by hopping in the shower without a shower cap. And, <laughs> and, I, and I will tell you, that was a huge deal, right? Yeah, that's and, a no-no. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that was money, um, that was time and energy. And those are the things that a lot of people don't, um, and we, we revolve so much about, um, you know, what we do and what we engage in, unfortunately, um, around our hair. And this is a part of, you know, the Free the Hair movement to really liberate, um, you know, individuals, not just African descendants, but everyone to liberate ourselves from having to go through these, um, you know, these these deliberations, um, and also to have to 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 not have to go through those deliberations in a way that is really trying to to um, you know sort of extinguish something that is so fundamental and critical a part of our identities, and just to be able to rock our hair freely, yeah. hopefully without any kinds of retribution or punishment or discrimination and stigmatization. And to your point there, it's it's breaking a cycle uh, because, you know, if this is the society in which you grew up and then you're trying to make sure that you are then grooming your kids um, to, you know, conform or assimilate uh, into what will then make them successful in their career, which, again, has nothing to do with their actual skills that they possess. Absolutely. So, right. It's a real cultural change, right? Mm -hmm. To really be able to celebrate that all hair is good hair. That is huge. It doesn't seem like it, but it actually is a huge cultural shift and change. And that is really what, you know, not only the Crown Act, but also, you know, the work that I've been doing in the scholarship and in the scholarly advocacy. Um, that's what I'm really hoping to achieve is that there is a real major uh, cultural shift and change so that our children can grow up in a society where, um, we're, you know, obviously it won't be that there's no longer any discrimination, but it won't be as pervasive, yes. right? And that they yes. are not feeling that there are opportunities in this world, they're, they're, the value that they bring to this world um, is being dictated by what is on their heads or what is around their heads, but more so about what is inside of their heads. I love that. I love that. Let's pivot for a bit. Um, so in your uh, experience, have you seen um, men of color uh, receive better treatment in the workplace for their hair choices than, than women of color? So stated differently, have you seen these policies challenged as both a race and a sex discrimination? 
Oh, absolutely. So I will not sit here and say that um, Black women necessarily are being treated worse than Black men. Um, it Unfortunately, this is um, what I call like equal opportunity discrimination. Um, so, you know, Black men and Black women are suffering from um, race-based natural hair discrimination, as well as Black girls and Black boys, and um, in educational spaces and beyond. And so, you know, a really good example of that is, you know, it, it pretty much, I mean, I think people are aware of um, Caden Bradford and um, DeAndre Arnold in Texas, um, both African descendant um, boys who are who were discriminated against on the basis of their locks at their school. Um, uh, Caden Bradford had to, to both he and his cousin had to change schools um, because their grooming policy barred male students from wearing shoulder length hair or even hair, even if pinned up, if it happened to fall out of the ponytail, then it had the propensity of hitting the shoulders. Um, and so they, they filed or with the NAACP, PLDF um, mm -hmm. filed a sex discrimination claim as, as well as a race discrimination claim um, challenging uh, the, the grooming policy as discriminatory on those grounds, as well as a First Amendment claim, uh, an infringement upon cultural expression. And, and I served as a legal expert in that case. And so really, yes, to your point is that African descendant boys and men are suffering discrimination on the basis of their natural hairstyles um, in, in schools, as well as in workplaces, you and in public accommodations. There's another case in Chicago from like 2010, 2011, where the work informed the holding of the administrative law judge who found that um, where those African-American men were being barred from entering a Chicago nightclub because they were wearing braided hairstyles. Um, it was a form of race discrimination in, in public accommodations. So there are all these different spaces where black men too are being discriminated against on the basis of their natural hairstyles. And then lastly, for a long time, uh, UPS too had a policy right, that barred natural hairstyles and overwhelmingly it was um, disproportionately impacting um, impacting um, um, black men. And because the vast majority of the, the workers and namely the drivers were um, uh, black men versus black women. And just recently under new leadership, thankfully the UPS and they, and they, they defended it for a, quite a long time, even in federal litigation. And they actually were successful based on, you know, the things that we talked about in terms of um, how narrowly the courts were cons are construing, federal courts were construing um, racial discrimination or what constitutes racial discrimination. So they were success successful. Their grooming policy was, um, was upheld as um, lawful. But just recently, late of last year, they decided to disband uh, their grooming policy that barred uh, natural hairstyles as well as um, beards uh, or facial hair. Okay. And so, yes, yeah, so it does happen. I'm trying to end it on a, on a positive note <laughs> that, <laughs> that there has been policy change. And to be clear, UPS was not legally obligated um, to actually change their grooming policy um, that, that prohibited natural hairstyles and um, facial hair, but they did because they recognized, back to your point, um, how this is a form of racial discrimination um, as well as um, discrimination um, at the intersection of race, gender, and religion.
um, and 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 thus it was not really serving their ultimate purposes as it or goals as it relates to bringing about an inclusive, um, um, and diverse and equitable workplace. So, so Wendy, we have talked a, a ton about, you know, the institution, you know, the policies from the, the organization, um, but I think it's time for us to go there and start talking about the actions of some of the individuals within okay. the organization. So uh, it's, it's happened time and time again. Uh, so you have someone with one of these, you know, ethnic hairstyles and um, they're faced with these microaggressions or micro invalidations where someone is touching their hair without permission or asking, what are you putting your hair to get it like that? Or I like your hair better when it's straight rather than this, this curly style, or how do you wash it uh, with it in those locks? Um, these, like I said, microaggressions, microinvalidations, have they amounted to discriminatory treatment or at a, at a minimum harassment? Well, legally, <laughs> legally speaking. <laughs> Is that what you want to know? <laughs> I, I guess, I guess we can go with the legal, but then we can also just talk about, I guess, generally on like a psychological standpoint as well. Well, I definitely believe is it is harassment um, and it can um, amount to a hostile work environment again. Uh, but I will say legally speaking, no, it has wow. not amounted to that. Unfortunately, under federal jurisprudence, just recently, there was a, a, a situation where an African-American woman who was wearing natural hairstyles um, was subjected to a, to a workplace petition. Her coworkers and her supervisor actually um, disseminated a petition for people to sign um, if they believed her natural hairstyle was unprofessional. And people signed it. And so she way too much time on their hands, by the way. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, I need you to do your job, please. <laughs> right. So you would think, right, that those people would get reprimanded, but no. <laughs> but this goes back to the point to the earlier point about, you know, people getting fixated about our hair in such a way that you feel like you need to regulate it in this kind of way, right? Yeah. Like you stop doing what it is that you're doing. And, 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 you know, that are such more, you know, so more, many more important things, right? Than worried about how I'm wearing my hair. Well, she, she files a race discrimination claim and a hostile work environment claim. And the federal court said it did not amount to a hostile work environment because that petition was not sufficiently severe or pervasive, right? Wow. Um, and right. So there's this other issue too that's going on. So, you know, um, so there's that. But in terms of, yes, yeah, so I believe that any of those types of things that you're talking about absolutely create a hostile work environment. Um, and it creates an environment that is, you know, undignifying, honestly, and offensive. Um, and, and unfortunately, it is quite pervasive um, in, in not only workplaces, but um, even in broader, broader social spaces where mm -hmm. individuals feel free to, um, you know, touch your hair without permission or to ask questions, you know, really negative questions, right, um, about your hair. Um, you know, and then there's other times too, where people may ask questions because they genuinely are trying to understand and they're trying to be educated, right? So I just, I don't wanna say you can't ever ask a question, 
But um, I think that you have to really, you know, appreciate the context and the relationship with which the person, you know, the, with, with the person that you're asking that question, you know, a complete stranger, no. But if you all have a, 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 a relationship, uh, um, then okay, then we, then, you know, possibly you can ask some of those things, but you have to be very mindful um, about the questions and to your point about even your comments, right? And I'll just tell you a personal story really quickly, mm -hmm. um, is that, you know, I remember um, at, at, at one of my former workplaces um, when I used to wear, when I was first going through the transition of, you know, rocking, going back to rocking my natural, my naturally curly hair. And when I was, I was still trying to figure out what to do with it. I didn't really know what products to use. I didn't really know whether or not when I traveled, especially if the water was going to be good for my curls. Um, <laughs> I didn't know what the weather was going to be like. So what I I would do is that I would straighten it and I would call it my conference hair and so when I would go to conferences I would just straighten it because that was yeah. just easier at that time now I wouldn't even know what to do with a flat iron or any of those other things but at that time it was just easier because that's what I had been doing for so long so when I so you know I would come back to work and, um, you know, and then I would wash my hair and it would be curly again. Right. And so people would see, you know, that that transition between straight and curly from conference hair to curly hair. And I remember one of my colleagues asking, you know, how do you get your hair like that? I think it's beautiful. But how do you get your hair like that? And all I could think of was in that moment was Beyonce. Like, I woke up like this, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, it didn't take me anything to do that, to curl my hair, to have curly hair. But let me explain to you that it takes a lot for me to have to wear my conference hair, right? There's a lot that goes into that. Right. So there's a positive side. However, at the same, uh, in the same organization, um, when I would wear my conference straight hair, um, you know, there was someone in the building who would only compliment me when I would have my hair straight. And I wore my hair curly for the vast majority of the time, right? And this person was um, someone who was um, very central to decision-making um, in, in the organization. And it did make me think about, you know, that whether conscious or unconscious bias, right? That he obviously had yep. uh, or associated with my natural hair vis-a-vis um, -vis my straight hair. And so I do wonder about, whether or not, um, you know, if I had shown up to the interview, right, with my naturally curly hair, would he have um, shunned that? Would that have been, played a negative uh, role in that decision-making process, um, right? And so that is something that kind of um, deliberation, that kind, the fact that we even have to think about that, it is oh. very, um, it's real, right? Uh, so it goes back to your point about what you say to someone um, you know, I say either don't compliment or compliment all the time, <laughs> you know, like, you know, if you're going to say something nice, say something nice, no matter what. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you can't, then just keep it to yourself and, and you don't have to, and no one yeah. will ever know you're the well, person and you're I not think, infusing some kind of harm on that person. I think there's also something to be said for doing your own homework, you know, and not thinking that, you know, particularly if we're in a space where, you know, you are the only my goodness, you don't want to be, you know, the person who's sitting down and having, you know, office hours on educating everyone about, you know, black hair. And let me tell you about my conference hair and my interview hair and how I can change it up. And 
that, that can be exhausting. That can be exhausting. And then that takes away from your productivity as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. That no, you're right. If that person should not be your your diversity and inclusion and equity and belonging um, expert. Right. This is where. And so to your point about if you're really trying to address these issues, you bring in people. You bring in people to talk about these issues. I'm having these kinds of conversations that we're having right now. Um, And I've done this with other organizations like Home Depot, for example, when the the Home Depot employees decided to have a three day long, you know, um, program around natural hair bias and discrimination um, and really explaining, you know, black hair which I thought was really phenomenal. I had never heard of anything, you know, where three days, you know, everyone, you know, they watched documentaries, they had panel discussions, um, they had, um, you know, conversations around, you know, hairdressing and things of that nature. So people could truly understand in a more, um, I think a more global setting about black hair, as opposed to those individual conversations that you're having or trying to put a, impose that kind of a responsibility upon just, uh, you know, upon those employees, right? Or upon even that one person, especially when you're dealing with, say, a person who may be the only um, African uh, American in in the organization. So really made it a public conversation um, and um, a global conversation, which I really thought was was quite impressive, right? Um, To really fully understand and appreciate, um, you know, not only our hair, but all of the things that the joy of it, Um, It's not, you know, so we've been talking about the discrimination, but I really just want to be very clear that there is a joy. (laughs) There is a joy um, in blackness. There's a joy in black hair. Um, And so it's not all bad. And it is not. Um, There is a liberation that comes with being able to just wear your hair as it naturally grows out of your head. Um, and, um, and that is something that I, I think, again, that we have to, to truly respect. Um, you know, as Polly Murray once said, the business of oppression is not respecting one's personhood. Hmm. And I will repeat that because it is just so, it just, all the work that I've been doing, especially, and I never really captured it that way until I saw this recent documentary of civil rights attorney um, and just legal architect of all things racial desegregation. Polly Murray said, the business of oppression is not respecting one's personhood. And this is such a critical part of African descendants personhood and um, and our joy um, every single day. Um, And when we are discriminating, when we are trying to regulate, when we are um, trying to suppress that, you are in the business of oppressing that Mm -hmm. individual. Stealing someone's joy. Oh, th- th- listen, that'll that'll, that'll preach, joy. Wendy. That'll preach. That'll <laughs> preach. So you're attempting to, and right. that's me. you're attempting to. I'm not saying you are, but you might be attempting to steal that person's yes. joy. But this is the part about what we have to do. On the other hand, we can't allow that. Right. right. Empowering um, the individual. Yes. We have to stand firm and really just embracing, you know, all of these different, these beautiful as- aspects of our personhood. Um, and feeling empowered um, and and free to do so. Let's assume, Wendy, that um, organizations, employers, schools, you name the institution, they want to do better. 
So what does an inclusive policy regarding hair look like? Because I can only assume, and it may be happening right now, employees or potential employees, they may start to ask, what are your policies on this issue? Even though, you know, they're not faced with some kind of discriminatory treatment in the interview process, or, you know, they haven't heard that to be, you know, the, um, um, the, the rumor or word on the street about how this organization runs, they may want to just know what is this policy so I can find out how inclusive is this place uh, when you actually get and delve into the policy. So what does an inclusive policy uh, look like or sound like regarding? Well, I think first and foremost, um, you know, I understand under certain circumstances where you have to have grooming policies. So so to be clear, especially if, if it is very um you have a bona fide like safety or um, health reason as to um, you know how a person can appear. So, for example, if and, and this goes and this goes back to across the board. Um, it's not to say that you can't have long hair. It's just that if you do have longer hair, regardless of whatever the texture may be or the style may be, if you do have long hair, you might have to pin it up right? Or you might have to cover it. If, so for example, like you're in a manufacturing type of a situation and there's that possibility of your hair getting caught up in a machine. Yes. Yes. Okay. That's that. So completely understandable. But again, it's not forcing someone to cut off their hair in order to do the job. It's just about accommodating that individual, ensuring that the hair is, is, is positioned in a way that does not interfere with their job in their ability to do the job, right? Um, so there's that. Um, what is, uh, beyond that, <laughs> I don't even, personally, I don't think that you really have to have a policy about grooming or appearance, right? Uh, not, not a written one, anyway. Um, I think to the extent that if, if a person in terms, so sometimes you don't have a policy, a formal policy, but you could also have informal policies or expectations. What I would really try to, to encourage employers to do is think critically about that. Um, you know, what do you mean when you say that a person needs to dress professionally, right? Mm -hmm. um, what is what does that really look like? Are you saying that everyone needs to wear um, suits? And if that is the case, um, are you possibly appreciating the fact that maybe not everyone can afford a suit? Um, so there's that. There's the class, the socioeconomic yep. dynamic of that. If we're talking about true inclusion and belonging um, and not trying to bring about some type of intimidating work environments. Um, so there's that. Um, does that mean that the, the women, for example, need to wear straight hair and the black men um, and, and all other men need to wear closely cropped hair, um, hairstyles? Well, um, does that have anything to do with their ability to perform their jobs? You know, is that anything? Probably not. So then right. I would say, you know what, that's not a place that you even really need to be regulating, right? I mean, then if you are, you need to really um, interrogate that and excavate why. Um, and I imagine for most people, it's because that is how it's always been done. That is the model that you have been shown, and that is the model to which you probably have been adhering to. But as I tell my students all the time, we can't just accept it for what it is and just believe that it's always, um, it is always um, the right thing to do. Yeah. And, then even, and in this instance, it's probably even lawful, right? To be able to do the things that I just described about. But just because it's lawful doesn't necessarily mean that it's right.
Um, and so taking a, a, just, a critical, just a critical look at those um, policies, those practices, those mm-hmm. expectations, those pressures, um, and really trying to, to possibly not only just reform those, but in, in, in terms of that, you have to sort of like, you know, reform your mindset as it relates to it. Um, um, and, and, and I think that's how we can bring about reform your mindset and also being open to the different types of experiences um, and um, that people bring to the table and not really thinking about difference, especially as it relates to appearance and grooming. Difference does not amount to, say, deficiency. And it should not amount to any type of devaluation. And Absolutely. if that is what is what is going on in terms of the implementation and enforcement of your grooming policy, again, that takes a critical look at it, then that is something that you likely need to reform. You know, and I'm sitting here thinking, even if you do not have a policy on the books, now now I have my chief diversity and inclusion officer hat on, right? You can look at the data and you can look at your attrition and you can look at the talent that is, you know, coming in your door and going right back out of your door. And what what are the trends? Uh, what do all those individuals have in common? So we can start to actually, you know, get into that data and find out why is it that we are unable to keep Black women in this workplace? Mm-hmm. And then examine the atmosphere and the environment that you, you're you fostering and that you're asking them to thrive in, mm-hmm. but you're really, you know, oppressing them, as you've mentioned, or, or trying to oppress them and trying right. to steal their joy. Right. Right. And I think a part of that is like, is this really about, um, you know, oftentimes when we are conforming to, say, Eurocentric norms, especially as it relates to appearance, it is truly about trying to survive. It's not necessarily about thriving. So that's another part of it, I think, with uh, with organizations. Are your policies and your practices really aimed towards just simply surviving? Um, Or is it truly about um, ensuring thriving for mm-hmm. these um, individuals, in particular, people of color, right? And a part of that, in terms of thriving, is being able to to show up to work um, in your most uh, in your most authentic self, and um, that your 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 work, your competencies, what you truly are bringing to the table, is what is being valued, what is being evaluated, and not you know, um, you know, whether or not you have locked hair one day and, um, or, or, or braided hair another day, like nope. that has nothing to do with it. And, you know, and when you're getting those types of comments or commentary around that, then that diminishes, right. To that individual is signaling to that individual that you care more about that than you care about what I am actually bringing to the table, the competencies that I'm bringing to the table, the value that I'm bringing to this organization. And and that is something that you definitely have to be mindful of. So that just goes back to, to me, it's about, um, so is about thriving, not just simply about, uh, survival. So Wendy, as we wrap up, what's next? Um, you know, talk to us about the hashtag free the hair movement, uh, the petitions you have circulating, um, I guess. Okay, wait, before you answer all of that, where do we have the Crown Act now? What are those limited jurisdictions? And then we can get into, I'm sure, what's next is trying to expand that and get it everywhere. But where do we have the Crown Act now? Okay, so the Crown Act and federal um I mean, sorry, the Crown Act and parallel um, legal reforms um, right now in terms of states is California, New Jersey, New York, uh, Virginia, Colorado, uh, Maryland, and I'm missing one because there's seven. 
California, New York, New Jersey, California, New York, New Jersey, Colorado, Maryland, Virginia, um, and um, Maryland. Um, and so those seven states. Um, have Crown Acts or versions of, of, of the Crown Act. Um, and then we also have approximately nine to 10 municipalities with Albuquerque, New Mexico, and New Orleans being the most recent in terms of cities who are passing parallel, who pass parallel legislation. There are uh, numerous states, almost half of the states last, last legislative session that introduced the Crown Act, but in light of COVID, among other things, um, we're not able to get it through. But um, this go round, you know, legislative sessions on the state level for many um, states just started like in uh, January, February. So there are many um, states that have introduced that legislation. And there's in there's more um, activity going on the municipal levels as well. So you definitely want to take a look at that. Perfect. The Federal Crown Act really quickly was um, passed in the United States House of Representatives. Um, but um, uh, in light of the fact that we're in a new legislative session, it'll have to be reintroduced and reconsidered by both of the chambers of Congress and then signed into law, hopefully by President Biden. Um, so that's where we are. So there's still more work to be done. Um, and so I definitely say, you know, advance and try to get your local as well as state and federal um, representatives on board. You can contact them you know, through social media, you can email them, you can do, you know, regular old snail mail, um, and even share your stories, you know, through the various avenues that you have, um, so that this issue can be um, on the forefront of their minds. How can our listeners and viewers follow you on, on social media? You are, you are leading the charge on this, in this movement. And so how can we follow you and make sure that we're staying updated on developments in this area of law? Sure. So you can follow me on um, Instagram as well as Twitter at Professor D. Wendy or at Free the Hair Now. And um, also you can follow me on LinkedIn too. I, I forget about that. I am there. Uh, you can follow me there as well. Um, just Professor D. Wendy Green. And um, you can also go to my website, www.freethehair.com. You know, as we conclude here, Wendy, if COVID-19 and the pandemic and subsequently the work from home climate, if it has taught us anything, uh, I believe it's that your employees can be productive irrespective of what they look like. Many people are working, they're wearing sweatpants, they're, they're growing their hair out, uh, they're having competitions about who can grow the longest beard, and they're still being productive. And in many industries, even more productive than they were when they were actually coming in the office. And perhaps it has something to do with the comfort level uh, of that environment. So I hope the lessons that we've learned over the past year uh, and the lessons from today's program have proven insightful and informative to everyone. I've certainly found it, especially today, uh, so very valuable. Professor Green, thank you so much for joining me for this courageous conversation. Um, we will certainly make sure that we uh, follow you on social media and stay updated on this very, very crucial development in the area of this particular law. Thank you so much. Thank you. Free the hair. 